Well, thank you to everyone who has led in worship today. Ethan, thank you for those songs. And Ryan, thank you for that meaningful communion meditation. You kind of feel like you could go home after that, don't you? <laughs> don't get your hopes up, but we are grateful for uh, everyone who takes part to lead worship. I guess it was Friday morning when my phone rang. It was Jim Baird. Always exciting to get a phone call from Jim Baird. And Jim's first words were, how's your voice, Jeremy? And I knew it was downhill from there. So uh, you're stuck with me again today. Jim and Yodi are home recovering. Jim, if you're watching, get well. They miss you terribly here. Um, but lots of people, uh, COVID's making another uh, leap for us, I guess, in some circles. I have a good friend who flew to Chicago to do some reporting and was supposed to come home today, I think, and he tested positive for COVID. So um, some family and friends of our members here are fighting another round of COVID. So thankfully, it doesn't appear to be as severe as it has been, but uh, certainly cause to continue praying. So uh, please remember to do that. Um, and let me say, just before jumping into Philippians here, that um, yesterday was our pantry ministry that we do. We do it once a week. This is something Tony has organized. Tony does great work. And Wilshire, you guys have been great in helping supply things for that. Thank you for that. And yesterday, Tammy uh, Newell and Laverne Parker uh, were up here working and uh, I know we were able to bless eight families with some groceries and food and help, which is a big deal in this time in our current environment. So thank you, Wilshire, for what you do for that and uh, the ministry that's been going on there. So I want to talk again this week about our series, Hard Love. So if you want to make your way to uh, Philippians chapter 2, we're going to be there in just a moment. But as you turn there, I'm, I'm curious, did you interact with anyone this week that you found hard to love? Or maybe a more difficult question to ask, did someone interact with you last week who found you hard to love? Love is hard, isn't it? And the kind of love to which you and I are called as believers in Jesus Christ is especially hard. And because love is hard, and this call to love like Jesus loved, because that is so hard, it is very tempting to try to seclude ourselves and limit our relationships entirely. So over the past two and a half years, I'm losing count, it may be three now, We've all lived through this unique time in history with COVID. And do you remember what this was like when it all started? It was like April, I believe, a few years back when uh, government officials and local officials came online and said, we need to try to flatten the curve. And so for 15 days, we're going to quarantine. We're going to shut places down. We're not going to go back to school. Churches, we're, we're going to ask if you not congregate for at least 15 days to try to get this under control. And it was something of a social experiment. Now, I, I certainly don't want to downplay the severity of the disease and, and all that comes with it. Some people have suffered horribly. So I don't want to downplay that. But 
On the other extreme, or on the other hand, it was a fascinating experiment into people and sociology, wasn't it? What happens if you lock people up in their houses, figuratively speaking, you don't let them go in public, you don't let them go out and mingle with other people? What happens in that kind of environment? Well, I'm, I'm guessing there's a split response. If you're an introverted person, this is the moment you've dreamed of your whole life. Am I right? You're telling me I don't have to go out and interact with other people. I don't have to go to big crowded places. No one can hug me. I don't shake people's hand. And even if I have to interact with people, you have to stay at six feet away. This is the stuff that dreams are made of if you're an introvert. Right? If you're an extrovert, someone who draws energy from being around other people, this is the very definition of hell. And people like you, if you're an extrovert, people like you came up with Zoom so that you can interact with people still. And there is a very bad place for the man who came up with Zoom. Or woman. You know, and these were the people who found a way to have a birthday party even when the government says, don't be around. So someone says, we're just going to drive around your house. We're going to have baby showers and wedding showers and graduation parties. Even though we can't interact one-on-one, we're going to do it in a creative way. <laughs> it's been an interesting experiment into the way people view relationships and the people who need relationships. But even before COVID... Our culture has been moving to a more individualized way of life. You try to call your bank recently? It's hard to talk to someone, to another human being. You dial the number to the bank, it's going to give you some phone tree. And even in the midst of the phone tree, while waiting on something, they're going to say, uh, we'd like to encourage you to get online. You don't have to interact with people. You go to Walmart, you remember when Walmart used to have 50 lanes open? No, that's never happened. They've had 50 lanes and one cashier available. You remember that? And now what have they done? They've set up self-checkout places so that you can, you can do the job and you don't have to interact with anyone. Our culture has just been moving more and more away from relationships. But what is the church supposed to be? If you open your Bible to Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes this letter, and it deals with a lot of interesting concepts and theologies and this high view of Jesus that Ike read, from us, uh, read for us from Philippians chapter 2. That Philippians is a book, perhaps more than any other, that deals with relationships. Now, it may not appear that way on the surface because, again, Paul is dealing with a lot going on. Paul's in prison and he's kind of writing this thank you letter for the church, sending him uh, some gifts and some help. But as Paul's in prison, he's, he's kind of isolated and alone and he's reflecting on relationships. He's reflecting on life in the church. And as you read through Philippians, you're going to find Paul has a deep value of relationships, even though they are hard. 
For instance, back in chapter 1, when Paul begins this letter, listen to this. Chapter 1 and verse 3. I thank my God every time I remember you, constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you because of your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. There's this man who's in prison. He's got plenty of time on his hands. And Paul says, I can't stop thinking about the church in Philippi, my brothers and sisters who are, who are an important part of my ministry. Or chapter 1 and verse 7, Paul says, You hold me in your heart, for all of you share in God's grace with me, both in my imprisonment and in my defense and confirmation of the gospel. Paul says, I, I, I can't stop thinking of my brothers and sisters in Philippi, and I know that you're thinking and worrying about me too. And then chapter 1 and verse 8, Paul says, I long for all of you with the compassion of Christ Jesus. Now let's be honest. Do you think about the people in this room that way? Do you have those kind of relationships, that kind of relationship with the people you worship with? Maybe not even just the people we worship with here at Wilshire, but our other brothers and sisters throughout Edmond and throughout the world. That when you're alone and when life is difficult, do you have that level of love for the church? Because it's hard. Even for Paul, this kind of love did not come easily. And as you read Philippians chapter 1, you find Paul admitting to the struggle a little bit. I mean, one of the reasons Paul is in jail is he says some people out there preach Christ, but they do it out of envy and strife. They're trying to, they preach Christ in a way that they're trying to get me in trouble. That they're out to get me. Paul had every reason to walk away from relationships like that. And even in his present moment, Paul makes this statement. You look chapter, chapter 1, verse 21, is where you get these famous words of Paul. For me, living is Christ and dying is gain. Now think about this. Paul says, I'm kind of torn here. I don't know if it's better to stay alive or to die? That sounds like a strange question to make, doesn't it? The first time I ever went snow skiing, uh, I went Durango, Colorado, and, and you ride up to the top of the lift, and there's you have a choice to make. You can go to either, you can take one course down the mountain that was paradise. That was the name of the run. You think, well, that's pretty easy, paradise. And the other one was purgatory. Here I am, a young Bible major, getting off the ski lift, trying to decide, do I want to go to paradise or purgatory? It seems like an obvious answer, doesn't it? Well, this is what it sounds like for Paul. I don't know if it's better to live or to die. What's so hard about that one, Paul? But here's why Paul has the struggle. Paul knows that if he dies, he is confident in his faith that he gets to be with Jesus. And everything he's longed for, everything he's 
worked for, every bit of grace he's received, everything he's endured, he's done for one reason, because he loves Jesus Christ. And Paul says, you know, if I die and I get to be with Jesus, that's a pretty good catch. But Paul is also torn because of his love for the church. For me to live is Christ. And that phrase kind of seems strange, but what what I think Paul means is, if I remain in the flesh and I remain alive, that is Christ-like. And here's why I say that. Because for Paul living, that means he's giving up something of what he really, really wants. Because for Paul to remain alive means he's giving up a taste of heaven. He's giving up a taste of being in the presence of God. And when you hit chapter 2 of Philippians, Paul says that is exactly what Jesus did. That Jesus gave up his place with God so that he could be with us. So see that phrase when Paul says, for me to live is Christ, Paul is saying that my survival here is, in a sense, a mirroring of the story of Jesus. And as Paul writes this letter in Philippians, Paul is trying to get this church to understand what it means to build our relationships around the model of Jesus. And that's where chapter 2 lands in Philippians. When Paul is talking to this church and he says, I want you to think like Jesus. Now, there's a lot of different directions Paul could go about that. Paul could could say, I want you to think like Jesus when it comes to your political involvement. Or I want you to think like Jesus when it comes to your sexual morality. But that's not where Paul goes. Paul says, I want you to think like Jesus when it comes to living with each other. And I want you to use the story of Jesus to shape the way you interact with the people around you. And here is the story of Jesus. He was in the form of God. And he didn't cling to that as something that he couldn't turn loose of. But he emptied himself. And he took on the form of a slave. He was born in human likeness. And he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. Now think like Jesus. What are you willing to give up? What are you willing to leave behind to help your brother? To esteem each other more highly than you esteem yourself. Well, if that doesn't run countercultural, I don't know what does. And when you walk in a room, you don't look and square it up and say, well, I'm better than everyone here. I'm I'm better looking. I'm better educated. I'm better off financially. No, if you walk in that room with the mind of Jesus, you look around that room to say, boy, these people are worth more than I am. 
And what Paul does in Philippians chapter 2 is he goes on, he doesn't just lay that out there and say, esteem others more highly than yourself, now let's change subjects. Paul actually gives you two illustrations that I find really interesting. You might miss it just the way he kind of delivers it. But Paul paints this picture of Jesus. He's with God. He's willing to leave heaven. He's willing to go to the grave. And there is a reversal in Philippians 2 that God takes him from the grave and he moves him back so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will sometime, someday bow. So there's this, there's this geographical movement in Philippians 2. From heaven to earth to grave, from grave to the highest of heaven. And Paul says, now you model Jesus. So if you empty yourself and you give up your own standing for the sake of other people, what is the logical conclusion of what God's going to do for us? He's going to lift you up as well. Paul says, eh, let, me, let me show you exactly what I mean by that. Chapter 2, verse 19. I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon, so that I may be cheered by the news of you. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. All of them are seeking their own interests, not those of Jesus. But Timothy's worth to you is now like a son with the father. He has served with me in the work. Paul says, you want to know someone who does exactly what I'm calling you to do? Timothy does that. Timothy, who's traveled with Paul, who's served with Paul, who's risked his life with Paul, who's sat in prison with Paul, is willing to go back to the Philippian church and to bless the church and to give of his own time, to give of his own means, and to serve them. And Paul says, that's what it looks like to have the mind of Jesus. Everybody in Philippi knew Timothy. And Paul says, do what Timothy's doing. But he provides a second illustration. Verse 25. Still it's necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and co-worker and fellow soldier, your messenger and minister to my need. He has been longing for all of you and was distressed because you heard he was ill. He was indeed so ill he nearly died. You see, it, it looks like we only meet Epaphroditus in the book of Philippians. He shows back up in chapter 4 where Paul says, thanks for the stuff you sent with him. But Paul says Epaphroditus is someone who has embodied the mind of Jesus because he came, he almost died serving me. Because that's what it looks like to have the mind of Jesus. Now, one of the interesting things about the book of Philippians is that there was an issue brewing in the church. We don't know exactly what it was. In fact, you don't learn about it till chapter 4. And, and when, when they receive a book in the first century, it would be publicly read. It was like standing up today and saying, We've received word from Jim Baird, who can't be here today, but he has written his sermon down, and I'm going to read it for him, which would have saved me a lot of time. But that's beside the point. 
And so that you would take this letter and you would read this letter publicly. Well, in Philippi, someone shows up and says, Paul has written a letter. Paul's in jail. We've all been wondering about Paul. Is he okay? What's he heard about his trial? Does he know if he's going to get out? Is he going to get to come with us? And someone shows up one day and says, Paul has written us a letter. And they all gather around and they all listen to Paul. And it's not what you expect from a prisoner. Paul says, I'm doing fine. I'm getting to share the gospel with the guards who are chained next to me or at least watching me. I've shared Jesus with the the guards around me, things are going well. And everyone, I'm assuming, is wondering, I wonder if Paul's heard about the problem. I wonder if Paul knows about the fight going on in Philippi. And he doesn't say anything for for four chapters. He does say this in chapter 2 of Philippians, consider each other more highly than yourself, have the mind of Christ, look at Timothy, look at Epaphroditus, You get to chapter 3 and Paul says, finally, and I imagine in my mind that there's this kind of sigh of relief in Philippians chapter 3 as someone's reading it when Paul says, finally, and they say, oh good, he doesn't know. He's not going to call us out like he called the church out in Corinth. Paul is kind of one of these preachers that says, finally, and get your hopes up, and then he writes another chapter and goes another 10 minutes. Because when he hits chapter 4... He says, therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, be beloved. I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. (laughs) You just got called out from the pulpit by an apostle. Everyone in this church has known about this problem and presumably wondering if Paul knows about it. And Paul has laid the groundwork all the way through Philippi, through Philippians to say, have this mind in Christ, think like Jesus, be like Timothy, be like Epaphroditus. And then Paul says, now Euodia and Syntyche, what is going on? You're on the same team. You work for the Lord. You've been my co-laborers. Get it together. Whatever's happening in that church, Paul says, will be resolved if you learn to think like Jesus. And that's not easy. That's what true and hard love looks like. So as Paul writes through this letter, Paul is calling them to hard love, to love one another in a way that reflects Jesus Christ and that says someone else is more important than me. In a lot of ways, it's kind of a continuation of the sermon last week about rights and giving up our rights, but it's, it's this practical, everyday view that says other people matter. That we cannot do this alone. That the world doesn't operate by falling at my knees and doing what I want. That we have to learn to live together. And Paul says the secret of doing that is having the mind of Jesus. Will it be easy? No. It led to Jesus' death. 
but it is what God calls us to. And what I love about Paul, again, is that he gives us examples. Everyone in Philippi knew Timothy. Everyone in Philippi knew Epaphroditus. Everybody had seen this in action. Have you seen that here? Can you think of someone, or can you think of that spirit at work in this church? I've seen it. I saw it this week with Ruthie and Sharon and Delana giving up their time and and working on things for your kids. They could have done a lot of other stuff with their time. I, I see it in Reggie every Wednesday, who shows up. You guys don't know this. Reggie usually gets here about noon on Wednesday and, and works to provide a meal for us Wednesday night. It's giving up his own time, his own energy. I saw it yesterday with Tammy and Laverne, giving up part of their Saturday to give groceries to our neighbors. That's what the mind of Jesus looks like. I see it in Lynn Fearhelm, who's trying his hardest to get to Togo, Africa. To leave the comforts of Edmond, Oklahoma, to take the gospel around the world. That's what it means to have the mind of Christ. No, it's not easy. And one of the things that COVID has pushed us to do is to offer worship online. Even before COVID, there was this growing trend among churches to offer church services as a means of convenience online. And for Wilshire, online became kind of the safe alternative when we were concerned about people's health. And and there are people today watching us online who would give anything to be present, but they can't. Online worship is convenient. You don't have to take time to get ready to make the drive to the church building. It saves at least an hour of your day. You don't have to worry about someone else sitting in your pew whether or not the AC or the heat is set exactly where you want it. If you're sitting at home and you can't hear the preacher, you can turn it up. Or if you don't want to hear the preacher, you can fast forward. Most of you are wishing you had that ability right now. You don't have to have those sometimes awkward conversations at church. How was your week? What's been going on with you? What is your name? I used to know your name. I don't remember your name. Or worse, would you have time to do this or that? Online worship is just more convenient, less messy. And it's tempting to take our faith and put it online so we don't have to deal with relationships. But brothers and sisters, online worship is not what God intends for our spiritual worship. It is necessary and important for some people to do that. And I'm so grateful we have technology to be able to connect with some people who are homebound. 
But the model of Jesus that Paul paints in Philippians 2, he left his own comfort to be present among the messiness of all of us. Paul knew that his letters were no substitute for the face-to-face fellowship he had with his brothers and sisters. Grandparents, you know there's no substitute for being with your grandchildren. You can Zoom all day long, but you can't sit on someone's lap via Zoom. It's just not the same. If you're in a relationship, maybe your husband or wife has to travel for a week or a month, and they call and check in on Zoom, that's not the same as if they're sitting beside you. And neither is online worship the same as being present together. Again, it is a wonderful technological advance to allow people to stay safe. But there is something important about being present in each other's lives. Because when we have those conversations and when we give up our time and when we make the sacrifice of getting ready and driving to church and sitting in a pew and having those awkward conversations, as difficult as those are, Paul says, you are being like Jesus who left heaven and lived among us. Would the gospel be the same If Jesus mailed it in, if Jesus never touched earth, and yet we as the body of Christ are called to have the mind of Christ as we share in our relationships together. That's not just about Sunday and online worship. It's about every relationship we find ourselves in. Can you imagine a church where members treated each other the way Paul calls us to have the mind of Christ? Can you imagine a family where each person holds the other in higher esteem than they hold themselves? What would your office look like? Even if you're the only one in that building who modeled the story of Jesus. I suspect it's possible that it would open a door to share Jesus more with the people around us. No, it's not easy, but it is the story of Jesus. There was an author by the name of Arthur C. Brooks who wrote a piece in The Atlantic. It talks about some interesting research, but he makes this statement at the end of his article. The world encourages us to love things and use people. But that's backwards. Put this on your refrigerator and try to live by it. Love people and use things. And long before that article was ever written, Paul said this, If then there is any encouragement in Christ any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in fully accord one with another. 
We don't live this way to be happy. We live this way to be Jesus. And it just so happens that God knows that being Jesus brings more meaning and fulfillment to our lives. So this week, your challenge is to have the mind of Jesus. It won't be easy. And it won't be, others, it won't be easy for others living with you at times to return the favor. But it is what it means to be a child of God. We're going to offer the invitation in the name of Jesus, and we invite you, if you've never put on Christ in baptism, to begin a walk where you are shaped into the likeness of Jesus. We want to give you that opportunity to begin that moment in your life today. So as we sing this song, we invite you to come as we stand and sing.